Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Uh, this time of year, um, in the area where I live, we have whales uh, migrating up the east coast of uh, Australia. And I know it's a real treat to be able to go to a, a nearby beach or headland and, and look out and um, see the uh, the whales if they're breaching or, or even if they're, you know, uh, you can just see them uh, blowing off um, as they breathe. Um, it's quite spectacular as they uh, clear um, and vent um, the, the water um, out the top. And, of course, they're quite large um, animals. And, um, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I guess there's something special about, about seeing them. And, of course, we associate, you know, whales in, with... Uh, they live in the oceans, of course. And, of course, when they, they die or uh, sometimes they're, they're killed, of course, they're, they t- uh, tend to be eaten by sharks or, or other animals. Occasionally they uh, wash up on beach or sometimes they uh, beach themselves. Um, and uh, again, once that happens, the, um, the local you know, animals uh, get a feast. But um, it's quite fascinating uh, that um, there was a, a very large um, deposit of uh, whales, uh, fossilised whales, was found um, in the Sahara Desert, about 150 kilometres uh, southwest of, of Cairo, on the edge of the desert there. And um, there's uh, quite a, a really good article on uh, this deposit published in National Geographic uh, back in August 2010. Uh, the author was T. Mueller. And um, as I said, the article was titled Valley of the Whales, and it um, is uh, quite fascinating, this uh, report of uh, the fossilised whales that have been uncovered there, particularly as the, the sand has blown, uh, been blown away from the, the wind and these uh, fossils have been revealed, uh, buried there. And it's, it's not just one, one or two. There's... Um, uh, it's estimated that over a thousand whale fossils have been found in this particular valley, um, and they're fossils of young whales, old whales, and they're not alone either. The uh, other fossils that have been found in the area include sharks and rays, um, crocodiles, um, dugongs. And of course, um, and and catfish. And in fact, giant catfish, lots of um, shellfish, sea urchins, and um, of course, um, you know, shells of marine organisms are, are found, you know, right across the Sahara, including the Giza Plateau, where the Great Pyramids are located. Now it's. Um, also quite fascinating as you uh, as I look at uh, some of the pictures that have been published of these whale fossils uh, where they're located you can see the horizontal strata laid down 
in the background, um, and you can see that the um, yes, the strata is is quite level, and also the local mountains. Many of them have been planed off um, pretty well level. It's very similar topography to what um, I've noticed in outback Australia, actually, in some places in terms of the the flat top mountains, although. Um, the strata in the um, it, when you look at the pictures, the photographs of the Valley of the Wales, uh, you can see a lot of um, horizontal strata there. And when you think about it, to bury these animals so that um, they um, are largely in, intact um, means rapid burial while they were whole. So if they were buried sort of very gradually, and uh, the skeletons would uh, sort of break up um, if it was, and if they were buried uh, and died naturally, say um, in in the sea, uh, sank to the bottom, and then were broken up, we'd expect the bones to be, you know, scattered and, and moved around by just ocean currents and predators and so forth. But uh, most of these uh, ones, are the, um, the the fossils are of the the animals, um, you know, joined to, together. And so the explanation of this in terms of the uniformitarian uh, theory, which underpins, you know, secular geology, is that, of course, this was once a sea, the animals died, they were slowly buried and so forth. But quite clearly, you know, to find whales there in the Sahara and the all these strata... Um, and the layers of the strata are, are, are quite thick, represents totally different uh, climatic and topography in the, in the past. And it has to have been, you know, a, a cataclysmic event to bury these whales and these other large animals like sharks and crocodiles um, in particular and dugongs, and, and to bury these animals so in such a way they haven't been eaten and preyed upon, so dugongs, by other animals uh, for, for food or other for marine creatures. And so it's powerful evidence of a catastrophe. But the thing is that we find these sort of scenarios are around the world. Um, I've spoken in the past, for example, of how on the... Uh, up in the deserts in the mountains of Peru, we find fossil whales as well. Um, there's one particular site where about a dozen or maybe even more um, whales have been found in uh, fossils, um, particularly the, the skeleton parts, in very good condition. Um, again, showing that they had to have been buried rapidly. And whales are big animals. Now, for example, the species of whale that are buried in the Sahara um, are pronounced uh, Basilosaurus and Doradon. And uh, the Basilosaurus whales um, grew to about 20 metres, 66 feet. That's a very, very big animal to be buried um, there. And as I said, uh, it's estimated that over a thousand whale fossils have been found there with all these other marine creatures. So the, the evidence is enormous that 
we have these massive catastrophic events in the past, such as um, not only buried, for example, in Peru, the whales, but pushed those mountains up. And therefore, to base our geology and so forth on this and calculate ages and so forth of millions of years based on the uniformitarian model is really um, clearly, you know, quite wrong. And uh, one of the things that I also find quite fascinating, and I think I've mentioned this before a few times, is when we uh, date the soft tissue that is, for example, found in in dinosaurs that are, you know, uh, tens of millions of years old. And this whale deposit here is estimated to be in the order of 40 um, to th- 35 to 40 million years. And they postulate that there was this sea there at that particular time. When we date the soft tissue of the dinosaurs, and I've seen the uh, results of these, I, I don't know if they've found soft tissue in these whale things in particular at this stage, or look for it. But we we get dates in the order of, you know, 20, 25, 30,000 years. And what I find most interesting is that these are the same uh, carbon-14, uh, you know, calculated ages that we get uh, that are now claimed for different, uh, for example, indigenous, um, you know, campsites and um, uh, art and, and so forth, uh, for example, here in Australia and I think um, in, in other parts of the world too, in, uh, in, in China they've been pushing some of the, the carbon-14 dates back. But when you think about it, we're, we're getting then into the same dates as the, as the dinosaurs when we date them. So again, we, I think we're, we're faced with a lot of clues, reproducible clues, that there's a major problem with our dating system. And there's also a major problem with our explanation for a lot of secular educa- um, explanation for these landforms, you know, forming as uh, seas and, and uh, being gradually buried and, 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 and so forth. Instead, Noah's flood... Um, provides a, a just the ideal scenario to explain these sort of um, fossil deposits. And of course, in the United States, we we know in the Morrison Formation that you know stretches from New Mexico up to um, Canada, you know, a massive area of the United States uh, covered with this uh, uh, particular sediment that has buried dinosaurs. Again, large animals, many of them large, of course a lot of them are small animals, um, but um, uh, the, you know, these large animals are, are, are buried there. And one of the interesting things that uh, I know has come out of some research recently when they have a much more accurate uh, satellite uh, location uh, capability now, so they can measure not only the, um, you know, the hor- the horizontal location of these fossils, but the vertical ones. They find uh, that many of the bones that are in, of, that are from, for example, dinosaurs in the Morrison Formation, uh, where the skeletons no longer articulate, that is joined together. In other words, we find a bit of bone here and a bit of bone there, and so forth. That the bones are sorted with the heavier, bigger bones down low and the lighter bones higher up. And so, again, this is characteristic of typical rapid flow water sorting of these sort of uh, materials. 
Of course, the other thing is too that when we look at these valleys and the Valley of the Wales where they're found, again, it's another, uh, and they call these wadis um, over there. Again, when you look at with the water flow, the best explanation, as I explained recently, is that if you have the floodwaters receding as the, and the earth being pushed up, as the water is flowing off these plateaus, it levels out the uh, deposits there and it cuts through and forms these valleys. Um, and it's most logical explanation. Um, uh, another example in Australia would be uh, the Carnarvon Gorge, perhaps not on the same scale as the Grand Canyon, uh, but last year I had the opportunity to uh, walk the uh, 30 kilometres or so uh, length of the Carnarvon Gorge. Or it's my, I think that was the distance up and back. Uh, was around 30 kilometres. So it's, it's a reasonably large gorge, quite narrow with steep sides. And when you look at the geology uh, here that, that we can look now, the it's not the logical flow of the river. And secondly, where of all the, uh, the material that would have been washed out, where is that located? It, it's not nearby. And so obviously it's been washed quite away. Um, and again, these represents uh, cataclysmic sort of events in the past. The other thing that um, when I, I go past a lot of these, uh, walk in these different gorges, the amount of erosion since the gorge is formed is relatively little. And so because you see all these sharp edges um, and so forth, and and I've often thought of that too, you, you know, sort of a, a classic example of this would be looking at, um, you know, the, the Alps and uh, the, Hima, uh, the, the Himalayas, Himalaya Mountains, Mount Everest and this sort of thing. Um, there uh, and I'm walking in New Zealand, there didn't seem to be a lot of material from erosion that you'd expect if these things formed, you know, millions of years ago. Uh, the where is the erosion? And you have erosion from sort of fresh landslides and this sort of thing, and you can see where the deposits have built up. And to me, the um, the indications are when I look at these structures, they they're not real old. And one of the classic examples of this, of course, is in Egypt where the wind erosion is very significant, uh, eroding away the relatively soft sandstone and, and so forth. Um, again, when we look at erosion rates and from erosion, um, again, the sites can't be, you know, 35 million years old and these sort of ages when we see the erosion rates are much faster than that. And the fact that um, in the Sahara there as well, we find these these buried whales and this sort of thing. We also find um, buried along old watercourses. We find the remains of old villages and uh, canoes and these sort of things have been have been dug up in in these areas there. So I think that when we look overall at the you know, topography of the surface of the earth. We know that um, on the the very top of the earth, there's a on the very surface of the earth, there's this very thin layer of sedimentary rocks that covers most of the um, land areas of the surface of the earth. 
and it, it just exactly fits the uh, flood scenario. Now, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, mock the, uh, the, the flood, you know, the global flood scenario, but it makes so much sense, and especially when we see these classic examples of fossil whales in the Sahara and in the mountains of Peru, it, you know, really, uh, in my view, should make us uh, think. And um, again, last year, um, I was able to travel through uh, North Queensland. And I remember one of the things that stuck out to me in terms of uh, the recent discovery of a lot, you know, quite a lot of uh, dinosaur, very large dinosaurs, very large marine creatures, um, that uh, they're finding out a lot, and we went to sites where they're currently excavating these. And when I saw some of the filming and the the farmer showing that, you know, walking through the paddock, the grass had eaten down a little bit. He saw this rock sticking out, unusual-looking rock, and what it was a thigh bone, the end of a thigh bone um, of a of a giant dinosaur. Um, and again, the the fact that they're there like that. Um, and, um, you know, in that state of preservation and so close to the surface there, um, again, suggests to me that we're, we're looking at something that's recent. Um, there's so much evidence for that. And, of course, there's even the Australian stories in the um, Indigenous culture of um, Yowies and so forth as giant uh, creatures that lived in the uh, waterways and uh, swamps. And um, it's uh, hard to think it was a, a coincidence, but you know, back in the early 1800s, in one of uh, the Australian newspapers in Victoria, published a picture of um, a, a giant animal that an Indigenous man said left, lived in a, um, a swamp, and essentially. What he described was drawn by an artist back in, you know, the 1840s or uh, it's about that sort of date from memory, um, just going from memory now. But essentially it was very close to, you know, a, um, a duck-billed uh, dinosaur. Um, so, and when we look at the, um, you know, the, uh, the flood accounts around the world, uh, that are preserved in pretty well all the different cultures around the world. I think we have powerful evidence for a global flood um, producing the topography that we see today. Now, of course, people raise questions. They say, well, you know, hang on, look, how, how did all the animals get into the ark? Well, of course, the Bible tells us quite clearly that God brought the animals to the ark. It was, a, it was a miracle. It was a supernatural event. I think one of the issues today that is certainly, you know, uh, polarising people is, is there really a supernatural or not? Does a supernatural world exist? And, of course, the Bible is very clear that it does, that there are evil angels called demons. As I talk to missionaries that have uh, worked in, um, in, in countries where, you know, uh, demon worshippers still um, uh, perhaps even found today, but certainly has been uh, uh, currently practised in, the, you know, in the past hundred years, um, in less than hundred years, um, the accounts of uh, demonic type events and really unusual uh, phenomena uh, it's very real, and um, uh, according to uh, these missionaries, they've observed these sort of uh, phenomena occurring. And I, 
was also interested, um, and it, it came to mind recently that, um, you know, the evidence for the supernatural in terms of angels, in terms of the good angels, as we read uh, the biblical accounts, the angels that appeared to uh, Abraham and to um, uh, Sarah and, um, and, and so forth, so many of the different Bible characters down through the ages, um, and to Mary at the tomb of Jesus and so forth. Um, it's, um, you know, I think the, you know, the, the evidence reported there is very clear for the supernatural. Uh, one of the contributors to my book In Six Days and also to my book uh, The God Factor uh, was Werner Gitt, and Werner Gitt uh, was a world authority on information technology, a, a professor at uh, one of the leading universities in in Germany uh, there, and as I said, a world authority on um, information technology. And he tells the account that during the Second World War, um, his family lived in the eastern part of uh, Germany and his father had gone uh, uh, and was serving in the German army. And uh, in the latter part of the war, when the uh, Russian army came into that part of, of Germany, uh, the, uh, the local German people um, wanted to uh, get away from the Russian advance and um, Werner uh, was put into a, a cart and um, uh, that uh, horse-drawn cart that was able to leave, but his uh, mother and um, sisters, uh, other members of his family, were in a in a different cart, and um, he understood that they were actually stopped by the Russians and and uh, captured and and taken away, and they never heard of them again. Uh, but he got into the uh, safety of family relatives and was passed. Um, to an uncle, I think, um, and um, and cared for during the rest of the the war um, by this uncle. Meanwhile, um, uh, Werner's father had been uh, captured and was in a prisoner of war camp. And as the um, war was um, ending, the soldiers were encouraged to, you know, write uh, to their families, and they obviously had to go and find their families again. And, of course, he had no idea where his family was. And Werner tells how his father reported one night he had a dream and he dreamt of an address and he dreamt of um, this relative uh, talking to him, saying, you know, when are you going to come and and see us? And in his dream, the father said, I I don't know your address. What is your address? And uh, in his dream... Um, the man spoke a particular address and Werner's father woke up and immediately wrote down the address. And so when he was released, um, he went to that address, uh, which was in a northern part of uh, Germany somewhere, I think, or it may have even been in an adjacent country, Denmark, I'm not sure. From memory, I'm just running from memory now. Um, but that was where young Werner was taken, the last surviving member of his family. And so when I, you know, we think about, you know, where did that information come from in that in that dream? Um, I uh, put out a book once um, some time ago called The Seventh Millennium, The Evidence We Can Know the Future. And in that book, I looked at the secular accounts recorded in the secular history of people having 
premonitions of um, you know things um, of, of bad things happening, of danger. You know, some classic examples, of course, are Julius Caesar's wife warning him not to go to the forum, um, Pontius Pilate's wife. But there are many others as well, um, right up to, to modern times. Um, and there are also dreams that accurately uh, predicted the future. Uh, people were re- revealed a number of things in dreams. It was quite fascinating, and these were accounts recorded in the secular history, uh, a number of them verified with a number of witnesses at the time as well. And so the argument of that book is that essentially there is overwhelming evidence for the supernatural. Um, of course, one of the, the classic uh, Bible accounts is in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, where we see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that was troubling him and he called the wise men to, uh, at the time, and of course Babylon was the world empire in that area at the time. It was the the dominant civilization. Um, And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the person who built the hanging gardens of Babylon there. And uh, he had this dream and... um, he knew it was a special dream, and so he wanted the wise men to interpret it, and he called them, and um, they, of course, um, said, well, look, tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you the interpretation. He said, no, you tell me what I dreamt, and then I'll know you will can tell me the interpretation. And, of course, they couldn't, and they were going to be put to death. And, of course, uh, Daniel, who was a, a, a young Hebrew who was being trained in the uh, schools, there was included in the group and so he went and saw Nebuchadnezzar and said there's a God who can reveal the the dream to me I will and um, give me some time and Daniel prayed and God revealed the dream to Daniel and he was able to tell it to Nebuchadnezzar and of course that's an amazing dream that outlined the world history essentially up until the second coming of Jesus right into our time and it's been fulfilled uh, precisely and we know the book of Daniel was written well before the time of Christ because, you know, older manuscripts of it and parts of it have been found, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. So we have this amazing evidence of the supernatural. And that's what the flood was. The flood was a supernatural event. The animals came there supernaturally. God supernaturally destroyed the surface of the earth. He used water. But we need to, you know, bear in mind it was a, a supernatural event, but it was a global, charismatic event that destroyed the surface of the earth, and just Noah and his family um, survived. But that too should be a warning um, for us, as Peter points out, that once again, um, as our world gets to the end, once again, everyone will have to give an account of themselves to God. Um, and God is going to destroy this world. And that's why it's so important that we get the message out that each of us need to make it right with God, and we can do that through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who died in our place for all the wicked, bad, and wrong things that we've done, uh, that we might have eternal life. It's, It's an amazing message, and it makes so much sense, the biblical account of salvation. So I encourage everyone um, to you know, make sure that you are reading your Bible and praying and, and taking this opportunity while we have life to be right with the Creator God who made us.
You've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google um, 3AB in Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the radio and listen button. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 